From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Hey, welcome aboard. Merry Christmas. Kala Christuyana to my my uh, Greek listeners and friends and family. I hope you're um, having a wonderful Christmas break, and I wish you the very, very best for the season. Of course, we have uh, two more shows uh, left before the end of the year. Uh, next week, my good friend... Victor Vigiani will be in the air chair. Uh, I will uh, remain in L.A. as I am tonight, actually, uh, uh, taping more interviews for Season 3 of the uh, Conspiracy Show television program. Uh, so Victor will be here next week with a special holiday-themed uh, version of the Conspiracy Show. Hope you're along for that one. Uh, but tonight... Uh, we have an interesting program for you, and I'll get to that in just a moment. Just, I uh, just wanted to share this with you. My little guy North, my twins, six years old. This is a big Christmas for them. They're very aware, of course, and, uh, uh in our house it's St. Nicholas, not Santa Claus, but we use them interchangeably. Anyway, North, uh, we asked him, what would you like from St. Nicholas? And he said, a baby alive. And I know maybe some of the dads out there are saying, oh, I don't know if I'd get my son a baby, uh, a doll, but, uh, you know, you may recall, these, these, these dolls have been around a lot of years. They wet and they drink and they cry and they eat and you take care of them. And, uh, you know, you change their diaper and you give them a bottle. And, and North is a very nurturing, affectionate little guy. And, um, I have no problem with it. I'll be perfectly upfront. I have no problem with it. If that's what, what, what he wants, then he's getting a baby alive under the tree, by golly. Uh, bless his heart. Zachary, on the other hand, I was very impressed with young Zachary. We asked him, and he actually got a phone call. We arranged for a special phone call from St. Nicholas. North was able to go uh, to a, a Christmas brunch at his school and, and visit with St. Nicholas. I had an in with St. Nicholas, and he called Zachary at home, who was sick. And Zachary was asked by St. Nicholas, what would you like? Very impressed. Zachary said, St. Nicholas, whatever you bring me is just fine. I tell you, my heart melted. What a kid. Both of them delicious, and it's a great time of year. And I'm hoping, I hope you enjoy are enjoying your family as well this holiday season. Uh, let me run some headlines f- uh, by you. Signs of an emerging police state. Oceans in peril. Fukushima nuclear disaster worse than anticipated. FBI agents responsible for majority of terrorist plots in the United States. First Federal Reserve audit reveals trillions loaned to major banks. Small network of corporations run the global economy. If you're sitting there scratching your head saying, hey, I didn't read about this in the newspaper, I didn't see this on uh, any of the major networks or CNN or CBC, that's because these stories, top Project Censored's list of the most censored news stories of 2012. Mickey Huff is the director of Project Censored and is on the board of directors for the Media Freedom Foundation. He's currently professor of social science and history at Diablo Valley College in the San Francisco Bay Area, where he is co-chair of the history department. Huff is co-host with former Project Censored director Dr. Peter Phillips of the Project Censored show. The program airs weekly as part of the morning mix on the Pacifica's KF, or, sorry, KPFA Free Speech Radio in Berkeley, California, and rebroadcasts on several stations including NoLiesRadio.org and the Progressive Radio Network out of New York City. Mickey Huff, a pleasure to have you aboard here on The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me on the program. For those n- not in the know, what is Project Censored? What is your mission? 
Well, our mission is to uh, really support a truly independent and free press by heralding those independent journalists that really write the stories that the public need to know about and get the facts out transparently sourced to the public about the things that matter most, things that have actually been sort of taken over in many cases by the, the corporate media, which masquerades under the title mainstream media, which is a great achievement of propaganda for the plutocracy that owns the public airwaves here, or has co-opted the public airwaves, because 90% uh, of the media in the United States, the news media, is owned for profit privately by six corporations. And these uh, filter information in a way that is beneficial to their shareholders, their advertisers, they rely on official sources, they operate under objectivity biases. So these are all real problems. And what we really try to do is to go back to old, uh, I don't I don't necessarily mean old-fashioned, but really simplistically, investigative journalism, report the issues, find the facts, report them to the people, find out what the, the prevailing uh, perspectives happen to be about the particular issues, and then go out and seek even further. What are some things that might be missing? In other words, we treat this as an ongoing uh, vernacular narrative, a people's narrative, not a top-down managed news structure. So what Project Censor tries to do is uncensor these underreported stories to give people the kind of information they need to meaningfully function in a purportedly democratic republic. And, and every year you release your top censored stories list, and we'll get into some of those in a, in a moment. But let me ask you, uh, what what has happened to uh, investigative uh, journalism? Because you and I were sort of talking uh, off air about the meaning of certain words and how conspiracy is now a loaded uh, loaded word. Uh, I would contend that if um, if uh, Woodward and Bernstein were, were toiling in the uh, well, they are. But uh, if they were digging up things on on uh, you know the, the president these days, if they were to report on Watergate in 2012, they'd be accused of being conspiracy theorists and laughed out of the room. That's correct. And in fact, it's interesting to bring up Woodward and Bernstein in particular. Um, Bernstein wrote a really, I think, a brilliant historical, now historical essay in 1977 on this issue of conspiracy theorists and the term. And, and the term hatched itself in our contemporary, uh, more contemporary history uh, out of the Central Intelligence Agency. And it was used as a meme floating through newsrooms that the CIA had great influence in, based on their op- Operation Mockingbird programs, infiltrating newsrooms to control the Cold War narrative. And uh, anybody that challenged the JFK rulings was, uh, I'm sorry, the JFK assassination, the Warren Commission assassination, um, they were to be referred to as conspiracy theorists. So it was supposed to discredit them a priori. Um, In other words, before you even get into a discussion, uh, Jay Epstein had a book at the time uh, in the late 60s that was really challenging the, the narrative of the Warren Commission and the lone gunman theory. So the CIA really helped float this out as a way of discrediting even academic and investigative journalists, people that were really just asking key questions that ought to be asked in a free society, supposedly free society. And so that term, unfortunately, still is with us. And anybody that wants to investigate um, uh, controversial events, 9-11, election fraud, and so on, um, it, it often is then cast as, well, they must be conspiracy theorists, and we shouldn't pay any attention to these loonies. Unfortunately, doing the research is how we uncover crimes, state crimes, corporate crimes. 
hands against democracy and against the people. So if you can somehow have an institutional subterfuge uh, whereby these investigations can't even get off the ground, it really protects the powerful uh, from concealing things uh, from the public that the public may not approve of. Uh, I, I want, let's uh, get into some of these um, these top censored stories of, of, of 2012. And, and I want to begin with one that, that um, left me gobsmacked, quite frankly. Uh, and that is, although I mean, I've always suspected uh, there may be something to this, but you seem to have, um, you know, really shone a light on this. And that is that the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, is responsible for most of the terrorist plots inside the United States. Tell me about that story. Well, this story is number four on the list, and it's actually not a new story, uh, to be honest. Uh, it actually stems from, if you go back to the 1950s and 60s, the FBI had a program called the Counterintelligence Program, otherwise known as COINTELPRO. Uh, this is matter of fact. These came out, these facts came out in the, um, Church Committee hearings in the Senate in the 1970s after Watergate, where there was this brief period of some openness and research about things going on under Cold War auspices of national security. And after 9-11, we've just seen a continuation of this kind of national security state and police state, which is another one of our big stories. And in this case, the FBI being involved in a majority of terror plots that it then subsequently thwarts, that's a key one. We're talking about uh, upwards of 15,000 people being hired on as informants or infiltrators paid sometimes upwards of $100,000. So think of the budgetary implications for this in terms of appropriations and politicking in Congress as well as the public face of, well, keeping America safe. And what's going on is the FBI are infiltrating uh, groups. They are teaming up with, um, you know, really volatile individuals, in some cases per- making them more volatile, preventing them from finding gainful employment, um, feeding them with a lot of paranoid thoughts and then supplying them with information and eventually material support and potential weapons to carry off uh, what would be referred to as terrorist acts against the public or acts of violence. Um, in Portland, for example, the person that was trying to maybe maybe going to be blowing up part of the downtown square in Portland. You know, this is pretty much the case that happened there. We see this kind of thing happening again in Cleveland with the people in the so-called Occupy movement. In other words, um, and by the way, this was published in Mother Jones magazine. Uh, it's all also been reported on RT. Um, so again, th- we, we know that this is going on. We know that this is happening. And the FBI comes out and says, yes, but we're thwarting these plots. So here's the fine line. Are they thwarting plots that would have been hatched anyway? Or are they taking volatile individuals, pushing them so far to the edge and using their resources to make them feel so out of control in their own destiny and their own lives that they must act out in a way uh, that these, these informants and FBI operatives are suggesting suggesting that they act out, and then, of course, they swoop in at the last minute and prevent them and look like heroes. This is a dangerous game. We see that in the 1993 World Trade Center bombings where the FBI had infiltrated the group and supplied real explosives instead of bogus ones. And that came out in the 95 trial on that issue. So this story, number four, I'm afraid, isn't new, but we've seen vast proliferation of it over the past years. And I think the public has a right to know this because there should be a very serious debate going on about national security and people that may be out to harm the public. And unfortunately, sometimes the people that inadvertently harm the public are the very people 
people tasked with protecting it in the first place. The majority of terrorist plots in the United States are hatched by the FBI. You won't hear about that on uh, PBS or Fox, uh, not even on the uh, CBC up here in uh, Canada. But uh, thank the Lord for uh, Project Censored and Mickey Huff, the director of Project Censored, who joins me. More of our conversation on the other side. Stay with us. The Conspiracy Show. Loose lips sink ships, and sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740. Mickey Huff is with us, the director of Project Censored, and they've released their top censored stories of 2012. Uh, the, the mission of Project Censored is to teach students and the public about the role of the, pr- uh, of the free press in a free society and to report the news that didn't make the mainstream news and explain why. Uh, another uh, uh, one of the high-ranking stories here on, on this year's list has to do with the New York City police planting drugs on innocent citizens in order to meet arrest quotas. Tell me about that, Mickey. Well, it's a problematic series of stories going on under the guise of the stop-and-frisk policy that's gained a lot of attention out of New York and has gained significant resistance um, over the last year or so. Um, going back through October of 2011, uh, a former NY Police Department narcotic detective testified that he regularly saw this kind of thing going on during the stop-and-frisk program, which allows the police to stop people for virtually any reason and just see what they're up to. Um, and, of course, the, there are millions of dollars invested here to try to arrest suspects for even possessing minimal amounts of, say, marijuana. Um, and the arrest cost one or $2,000 apiece. This was written about in the Gothamist. Uh, that's out of um, New York. It's also something that's on alternet.org. Uh, Jesse Levine wrote about this. But there have been even more people talking about this. It's been covered vastly in Revolution newspaper. Certainly uh, people like... Uh, Carl Dix and even um, Cornell West went on a national speaking tour trying to call attention to this kind of process. And then what, what the police department does is they try to petition for grants and more, more funding to basically show that they're being tough on crime. And so they go out under this policy and they start stopping people. And unfortunately, another component of this is that mil- most of the people that are ensnared in this stop and frisk are people of color, are young men of color. So there is a disproportionate number of people that are Hispanic or African-American, uh, Latino, that are, that are being stopped and and, and this is, again, part of a racial profiling issue. And then they go, the police department go back to their bureaucracies and show these high rest numbers and these quotas they're supposed to fill so they can then ask for more taxpayer money to go out and stop and frisk people randomly, finding often very minor infractions or, or nonviolent type offenses. 
So we think, again, that people have a right to know this, given that it's a public affair. It's about public safety. It's happening, again, in big, major cities like New York City. It's being replicated in other parts of the United States. And, again, at Project Censored, our real mission is to make sure that people have the facts and have the knowledge uh, about the key things happening in, in, in our times so that they can act intelligently about it. And if the people don't believe that this is a wise or judicious use of resources or that it is not a component of a socially just society where people are not being treated equally and people's liberties are being violated, then people should act and people should say this stops. This will not happen in our name and it will not happen with our money. There are better ways to provide safety and security to our communities rather than this method of harassment and stop and frisk. Mickey Huff is with us from Project Censored, the website www.projectcensored.org. Do you have friends that work in the mainstream media as journalists? Yeah, we, we know many people in both independent and corporate media. So we know people that have, we actually know some people that who, uh, whom have, they have defected from corporate media. Christina Borgeson springs to mind immediately as a great journalist that's worked with CBS, Dan Rather, and many others that's, you know, really, really had a hard time over the years because she wanted to publish stories that were very controversial, though factually supported. Um, she's got a couple of really great books. Feet to the Fire is one. Um, and it's full of these type of industry insiders. And, and that have come forward and said, look, I had this, I was censored on a regular basis. Um, these kind of things really do happen. Now, understandably, there are people in the corporate media that see us as attacking them. Uh, but our, our real, gen- the genesis of the project is not about attacking journalism. It's about making it more in line with the principles of a free press. As George Seldes said in the 20th century, mid-20th century, the job of journalism is to tell people what's really going on. And we can't do that when we have all these other pressures and when we have these other terms and conspiracy theories and people are afraid to talk about these issues. And we want to really kind of reclaim all of this and say, look, what we want is open narration. We want factual sources that are transparently cited. Uh, we want a whole host of these things to be part of a natural process of informing the public. So when we remind people in the corporate media of this and we nudge them about this, um, it's not to say just that you're failing and part of the problem. It's to say, you've got a lot of resources here, and if you would just buck some of the influences that are going on to prevent you from doing this, we could all work on this together for the betterment of humanity. And in the case of some of these stories, and we're talking about global warming and, and, and climate problems, I mean, we're talking about humanity. We're not just talking about nation states. We're not just talking about private interests. We're talking about all of us. And I'd hope that at some juncture, people in the corporate media, as Ralph Nader once said, uh, that they, they would have fixed censored copies of their book, the censored journal, to their their newsroom. So instead of relying on things coming from the newswire on slow news days, they pick up this book and say, well, what are people already doing that, that need lifted up? They need more megaphone. They need This story needs more life to it. And I think that if people maybe would do that kind of a thing, eventually Project Censored would be not needed anymore. And frankly, that would suit me fine, uh, because that would mean we were much more along our way to a path of a more just society. Uh, I often uh, uh, am asked to uh, represent the conspiracy theory, quote-unquote, whatever that means, when I'm uh, asked to go on to the mainstream media on a, on a, a television show or a radio show uh, and where I'm sort of seen as some sort of a, um, an, you know, an amusement uh, mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, I'm, I'm one, of, uh, one of those conspiracy nutters. Uh, and they ask because me, you dare to ask questions and think critically and independently for yourself is what the translation really is. There you go. Uh, 
but I'm asked, you know, to explain this phenomena and I, uh, you know, why the rise in conspiracy theories. And I say, because you aren't doing your job. And so people are, are voting with their feet, running away from mainstream newspapers, television and radio. Uh, and they're finding this information on the internet. And, and unfortunately, there is a lot of misinformation out there. And, and, uh, people have sometimes difficulty separating the wheat from the chaff. But, but I turn it around and, 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 and what's given rise to this conspiracy uh, community or, or, or subterranean culture, as some like to, to, to call it, it's, it's their fault. It's the mainstream media's fault. Well, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean someone's not out to get you, right? Exactly. I mean, it, in other words, makes too light of this. I mean, I teach critical thinking courses in college and uh, impact of media propaganda on historical interpretation and so on. And I, I do this all the time um, where I do speak on issues of 9-11 and so forth. But I, I, I do so on the basis of factual research. I do so on the basis of what is out there. And as you pointed out, what are the, the reason that there are so many potentially outlandish theories and views is because because the official interpretations are ludicrous. They are not backed by factual evidence in some cases. They propose wild hypotheses that are never proven while then accusing others of the same thing. And then the debate is stifled and there's no open discourse about it. What we're suggesting at Project Censored is simply let's have these debates. Peter Phillips and I have had open debates. We had a national show on Pacifica KPFA Radio on the 10th anniversary of 9-11 talking about the Twin Towers and Building 7 with Richard Gage and architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth and physicists at UC Berkeley that disagreed and someone from Reason and Skeptic Magazine, because we believe the public has a right to not hear name-calling and straw-person tactics and red-herring fallacies. They have a right to hear legitimate disagreements so that we can understand complicated matters. Unfortunately, most official narrative government investigations serve as obfuscation such that maybe we will never know what happened in some of these very complicated or uh, controversial events, and I think that's really part of our problem. And by trying to wake people People up to the significance of being a critical thinker, an independent thinker. Remember, Emma Goldman once said that being an independent thinker was the most unpardonable sin in our society. It is something that's uh, not looked upon uh, politely in public or mainly political culture because it means that it's harder to fool people. And once people are really thinking more on their own, we also need to t- connect this critical thinking component to media literacy. We live in a society saturated by media messaging and bombarded by ubiquitous messages from various places. We need to be media literate such that we understand, well, what is this source trying to tell me? What are the funders trying to get me to believe? What are they trying to distract me with? We do a whole chapter on junk food news every year about the Kardashians and Britney Spears and, you know, this kind of Twinkies for the brain story about... What are we paying attention to instead of paying attention to what's important? Like over the last weekend, why are we paying attention to this South Korean rapper, Psy, who uh, some people are being uh, very uh, upset about him making negative statements about U.S. foreign policy, when the same weekend we have the U.S. military and the Pentagon saying that they are going to have to try to rationalize the killing of children uh, in the Middle East because they're part of terrorist plots as well. I mean, we should be talking about at what point is our culture descended such to the degree to which that we're talking about the legitimate targeting and killing 
killing of children mm. in societies. Yeah. Yeah. Rather, we're obsessed with these other nonsensical affairs. And I think that, again, we need more open, transparent type of platforms. And kind of just what you said, exactly the thing that I think you're doing, that you're trying to accomplish, is you're really just trying to get people to have sober, honest, respectful dialogue about the things that matter most in our world. Number 12 on the top censored stories of 2012 is the uh, collaboration of the Obama administration with al-Qaeda in Syria. Now, I, I, from the beginning, I have long suspected that this was this was not a, a popular uprising, a continuation of the Arab Spring. This was orchestrated. Uh, this is an outside insurgents uh, uh, insurgency uh, who have targeted Assad. Uh, they want him out. They want regime change in Syria. NATO does, and uh, that's what this is all about. But, but tell me a little bit more about uh, this collaboration with Al Qaeda. Well, you know, this goes way, uh, back, well, obviously, some ways. You go back to Osama bin Laden and uh, Mojahedin and the U.S. Cold War policies in Afghanistan, thwarting the Soviet Union and so on. And al-Qaeda means literally the base or the network. And so over the years, while we were simultaneously looking for a bin Laden or targeting one al-Qaeda group, we were working with al-Qaeda forces in other parts of the world. Clinton did it in Yugoslavia. Uh, we've done it in Afghanistan um, while we're paying parts of the Taliban and al-Qaeda forces not to attack U.S. interests and so forth. Uh, it's highly likely that this was going on in Libya, and here we see it happening again in Syria. has the same kind of fingerprints, all under the rubric of Arab Spring, because there are legitimate pro-democratic, anti-Assad or anti-Qaddafi movements afoot in, in these countries. But it is also the case that the United States and Britain have been funding, arming, NATO has been in here funding and arming people and making it look like it's a popular uprising only, like a simple black and white issue, when in fact NATO is really trying to exert its influence there, and the United States has long wanted to oust Gaddafi and long wanted to get rid of Assad. That's not to suggest that Gaddafi and Assad didn't have their own issues or problems, but the way that this issue is covered, again, is it's very black and white when it's actually very complicated. And even in the progressive press, even in the, the, the so-called left press in the United States, Amy Goodman, Democracy Now!, who does wonderful work much of the time, she's a valuable asset to free speech and free press movements, um, they kind of parroted the NATO lines on these issues of Libya and Syria, whereas Michel Chosadovsky out of Ottawa, Global Research, um, Eric Margolis out of Information Clearinghouse, um, I think Global Research has really been on the front of this, Finian Cunningham, uh, Stephen Lenman. These people have really been showing the other side of this story. And the danger is is that when you show the other side, people then suddenly jump in and say, well, because the Russians are into, uh, backing Assad, you're pro-Putin, you're pro-dictator. And look, that's not going on here. Project Censored is not pro-dictatorship. Neither is Michelle Chosadovsky or Lenman or any of the people that are pointing out these problems. But again, now we're supposedly some kind of conspiracy theory that, oh, the U.S. is going in there to destabilize it. Well, guess what? Over the course of the, the 20th century, the United States exactly did that, and dozens of countries went in, destabilized it, supported local factions, made it look like a local uprising, fed off of some of the local movements and discontentment were there, and then controlled the governments thereafter. We're certainly doing that now in Afghanistan under Karzai, who was a representative of Unical Oil trying to get to the Caspian Sea oil reserves, negotiating with the Taliban under Clinton in 1998. You know, we could go on 
and on and on about the history of this. So the frame ought be, based on uh, consensus historiography, is that, yes, the United States does act this way and has acted this way, and what we should do is be trying to figure out what's best for the Syrian people. What are the Syrian people really dealing with here, and are we actually helping the situation or are we exacerbating the situation? And I love also how this often operates under the Orwellian rubric of humanitarian intervention. You know what? The Syrians, the Libyans, they don't ask what bombs are blowing up their villages and their children, whether they're NATO bombs, Assad bombs, Gaddafi bombs, they're bombs. Their countries are being turned into war zones for profit and being turned into it for political uh, expedience. And I think that that should be part of the narrative that we look at when we look at this extension of Cold War policies under the guise of the war on terror. Interesting, Mickey. We'll take a time out and we'll come back and finish up here. But uh, I I thought it was interesting when uh, President Obama was uh, talking about uh, uh, the recent uh, uh, violence in uh, Israel and and the Gaza, the Palestinians in in the Gaza Strip. And uh, when when shells were raining down uh, on Israel, the the president said no other country on earth would tolerate this sort of thing. And yet here we have the Americans with their drone, uh, their drone attacks in Pakistan and so forth. It's uh, it it is Orwellian. It's 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 riveting hypocrisy and it's in your face. It's not even as though there are efforts to cover it up. It's if anybody pays a whit of attention and thinks independently on their own, the things that you just said become painfully obvious. All right. We'll take a time out and uh, continue our conversation on the other other side with Mickey Huff, director of Project Censored right here on The Conspiracy Show. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We're back with Mickey Huff, director of Project Censor. Just a few moments remain. Mickey, appreciate your time. Uh, the, the, um, the White House, the press corps, their credentials are, from what I understand, issued and can be taken away by uh, the Secret Service. Uh, and so, uh, not surprisingly, we never get those tough, um, uh, obvious uh, questions coming from the White House press gallery. Uh, certainly since, you know, uh, Helen Thomas was unceremoniously uh, removed. Do you see that the way that the, the White House press corps is, is, is stifled as, as one of the, the main problems with, with journalism in America? I think that you're really on to something there. In fact, I discussed it. I discussed it in uh, our book this past uh, this past year, and I I discussed it in a um, in a chapter on junk food news and news abuse. And I actually looked back to Daniel Borston. He's an historian uh, from the 1960s, and. Uh, Borston wrote a book called um, The Image, A Guide to Pseudo-Events in American History. And these press conferences that, you just, that you're just talking about here, this is a precise example of a pseudo-event. It's manufactured, it's controlled, it's framed, and there are certain things that fall outside of the frame. And everybody knows who's in the press pool the kinds of questions you can and can't ask. So there doesn't have to be an overt form of censorship, per se, that's 
visible from the outside. And um, I think that that's a really important thing that people ought to remember, is that we're dealing with framed information, managed information, controlled information. And uh, again, I can't recommend people going back and rereading Borston's book Enough from 1962, again called The Image, A Guide to Pseudo-Events in American History, uh, because it, it really touches on the kind of society that we've become. It's odd sometimes for historians to be seen as so prescient, but um, I do want to briefly, at least if I could, point out something, um, something that, something that Borston said that I think has just become more and more true over the last half century. Borston wrote, we expect anything and everything. We expect the contradictory and the impossible. We expect compact cars that are spacious, luxurious cars that are economical. We expect to be rich and charitable, powerful and merciful, active and reflective kind and competitive. We're ruled by extravagant expectations, by harboring, nourishing, and ever enlarging our extravagant expectations. We create the demand for the illusions with which we deceive ourselves and which we pay others to make to deceive us. That's basically what we've described in a nutshell, whether it's this press corps or the nightly news or the corporate media frame. We, as Neil Postman said at NYU, we're the uh, best entertained, least informed society in the modern world. He said that over 20 years ago, and sadly, I think that's truer today than ever. Amusing ourselves to death, indeed. Mickey, give, uh, give my listeners an, uh, an assignment. What, what should they do if they're concerned about uh, the censorship of news stories uh, throughout North America? Well, one thing they could do is go to our website, projectcensored.org, where we have all of our stories cataloged back to our founding in 1976. And you can uh, research stories. You can nominate stories and send them to us. If you're an, an educator and you teach at a college, university, and so on, you can offer your skills and student researchers to become more media literate and help us compile our book every year. So the assignment is go take a look at the website, take a look at the investigative research and all the things that we're doing, and all the like-minded media democracy organizations with whom we work and pick something in the new year to become part of and be part of the solution to fight censorship rather than just decry it or to ignore it or pretend that there are other things to deal with. No matter what your number one issue or concern is, the number two issue has to really be how do we get information out? How do we help us, uh, our society become more informed so that we can make better decisions about where we're going as a people? And I say, again, one of the big things to do is to help fight media censorship help promote media democracy, and really, really uh, encourage a truly free press. Mickey, appreciate your time. Merry Christmas. Same to you. Thanks so much for having me on, and again, we'd be delighted to come back anytime. Let's make it a yearly event, at least. Mickey Huff, director of Project Censored. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. 
Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. Uh, Victor Vigiani, my good friend from Zeland News Network, will be sitting in the air chair uh, next week offering up a special uh, holiday season version of The Conspiracy Show. And again, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah to uh, all my listeners. Now, have a listen to this, and you tell me, is this something to kill yourself over? And we have been told that this phone number is the hospital mm. where Kate Middleton is currently staying. We can't yeah. just ring up and go, hi, it's MC and Mel from the Summer 30. Can we chat to Kate? Hang up. Not going to happen. Yeah. You are going to be the queen. This is awesome. I'm going to be Prince Charles. You could be the, the, the royal corgis, if, if you're okay <laughs> with that. <laughs> Hello, good morning. Can you have a seven Oh, hello there. Could I please speak to Kate, please, my granddaughter? Oh, yes. Yeah. Just hold on. Um... Thank you. What's this one? Kate, my darling, are you there? Um, good morning, Mum. This is uh, the nurse speaking. How may I help you? Hello, I'm just after my granddaughter, Kate. I want to see how her little tummy bug is going. Mummy! She's sleeping at the moment, Mommy. and she Mommy. has had an uneventful night. Um, and, and sleep is good for her so as, as we speak. She's been giving some fluids to rehydrate her because she was quite dehydrated when she came in. Um, but she, she's stable at the moment. Okay, I'll, I'll just feed my little corgis then. Um, so what, when is a good time to come and visit her? Because I'm the queen, so I need a lift down there. A prince, Charles. Charles. Mummy, is everything okay? Oh wait, my Charles. When can you take me to the hospital, Charles? When when will it be all right to come down and see her? Maybe maybe in the morning or something, if that's okay. I would suggest that any time after nine o'clock would be suitable because the doctor will be in in the morning. Okay. And we'll just be getting her freshened up in the morning. Uh, I would think any time after nine. Wonderful. And is, is Wills, is Wills still there? Has he gone home? I haven't spoken to him yet. He went home at about half past nine last, no, for actually probably about nine o'clock last oh, night. Okay. Lovely. But they're all yes. okay? Everything's all right? Yes, she, she's, she's quite stable at the moment. She hasn't had any retching with me since I've been on duty. And she has been sleeping on and off. Wonderful. I think it's difficult sleeping in a strange bed as well. Yes, of course. It's hardly the palace, Oh, it? it's nothing like the palace, is it, Charles? No. And when are you going to walk those bloody corgis? Mumsy, I'll go and take the dogs outside. I need to go visit Kate in the morning. My dear, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs> she hasn't given us real information. When I first heard this tragic story, I, I thought it was very strange, very suspicious. Here we have this 46-year-old nurse, Jacintha Seldana, uh, working at the uh, the King Edward VII Hospital in London, where Kate Middleton, the Duchess of Cambridge, was being treated for severe morning sickness. She takes this call from these this Australian uh, morning zoo team uh, and is uh, it, it seems like she wasn't even uh, a duped. She simply passed the call on. She had a, a call, a, a, an inquiry for a patient. So she passed it on to the night nurse. Well, the uh, the night nurse uh, received, received the call thinking, OK, someone wants information about Kate Middleton's condition. So she just said, well, she she's doing fine. But the woman, the nurse, who took the original call and simply passed it on, is then found hanging in her flat near the hospital. Uh, she apparently was alive at the time, and uh, attempts were made to revive the 46-year-old mother of two. Uh, she died, however, tragically. Um, and uh, she, she said she felt such incredible remorse and guilt over being tricked. I just found this very, very suspicious that anyone would go to that length. 
kill themselves over simply passing on a phone call. Uh, and uh, someone who shares these suspicions is a, a good friend of the program, of course, our resident media scientist who studied under the great Marshall McLuhan. He's also a noted assassination researcher uh, who has done a lot of research, for example, into the assassination of Princess Diana. Here, joining us once again, is our friend Nelson Thal. Good, good to be here, Richard. What led you to suspect that Jacintha Saldana did not hang herself, that she was perhaps murdered? Well, just, Richard, to start with, it's a once again an interesting situation. It's a complex case. <clears throat> and what's interesting is right off the bat, we saw so many patterns here, as in other su- uh, covered-up suicides, which have now been exposed, like the Dr. David Kelly, UN inspector, was supposed to have been suicided, and the news that came out was he... he he had killed himself. And later on, uh, Michael Shrimpton, lawyer for MI5 and 6, admitted that, uh, that it was a Turkish wet team that was behind the assassination of Dr. Kelly. And this has the same sort of fingerprints right off the bat. Um, you know, Richard, uh, uh, to make a, for the public consumption, you may tell people that, uh, the last firewall protection between the wife of the man in line to the throne of England. You may say that the last firewall of protection was an East Indian nurse, but those of us who followed royal security protection know much better about how the real security is put around these people. So for somebody to say that they got through and could get through through uh, a nurse on an, uh, to a night nurse, <laughs> it, it's a huge, obvious uh, falsehood, and that raises red flags right off the bat. So, Nelson, you believe that she may have been knocked off by uh, MI6 or someone even higher up in, in British security at the behest of, uh, of someone in the royal family? Well, let's just go back, you know, once again to the security and what we're told. The police told us that they don't know the cause of death, but they, on the same breath, said they know it's not a suspicious death. Now, what do you make of that, Richard? Well, it is interesting, and apparently now they're reporting that when she was discovered in her flat, uh, supposedly uh, hanged, she was still alive, which is interesting. But what I don't understand, uh, Nelson, and that, is... And, of course, Princess Diana was also alive when she got out of the car, and instead of a four-minute run in an ambulance, it turned out to be 40 minutes. Right, right. Yeah. I, I get what you're, what you're saying here. So there's some, some interesting parallels there. But I, what I don't understand is here we have um, this nurse. She's a mother of two. She's found dead days after this Australian radio station duped staff again at London's King Edward VII Hospital into revealing death uh, details of the Duchess of Cambridge's condition. And again, she was being treated, Kate Middleton was, for severe morning sickness. Now, the, Jacintha Saldana, she took the call, but she passed it on to... Uh, a, a, a night nurse who was the one that revealed the details. So why would they target Jacintha Saldana and not the night nurse who revealed the details? You know, Richard, the, the, when you're dealing with monarchs who control and are above the law, then you've got to not necessarily understand whether or not there was a private nurse or even a night nurse. As a matter of fact, since when do these people go to hospitals? And you know full well that the Queen, she doesn't know how to make a phone call. She doesn't make phone calls. It's too insecure a line. When she wants to speak to people, she they come to her or she has her Secret Service 
use walkie-talkie connection to to the multitudes of Secret Service that would be in the hospital. So they don't use telephones, and that's the real truth of it. So now the police aren't talking about that. They're going along with the fact that there were phone calls and hoax calls. And this stuff just is more fodder, once again, for the public, isn't it? Well, again, so Nelson, uh, just recap. Your theory as to why this nurse, Jacintha Saldana, was perhaps murdered by, do you think it was MI6? Uh, We don't know who it is, but we just look at the past, as we say. Michael Shrimpton uh, expressed, he was the lawyer for MI5 and MI6, and he was on with Sherman Skolnick, and uh, talking about the Dr. Kelly suicide and how they suicided him, Richard, right? They suicided him, and and so legal counsels for these intelligence agencies have already talked about this, and uh, that's one of the beauties of the Internet, that these things get out. And so there's a lot of similarities here. I don't know who did it, of course, and we don't know the motive, but we do know that it's one thing we can say, this is not a suicide. The reason the motive uh, is we'll have to continue investigating, but it isn't what it's been reported to be. And, and again, you suspect that it was because uh, the the royal family or MI6 or whomever it was that pulled this off wanted to send a clear message that what you you don't mess with you know the Duchess of Cambridge or you don't mess with the royal family or or what exactly would be the motive? Do you, do you no, think? could have been an outside foreign intelligence black op operation against the Windsors that uh, went astray, that went awry. There's lots of possibilities here, but it will come out. We'll continue to report it on this show because um, it's it's there's this is definitely not we're we're told from sources in the intelligence agencies that this is not a suicide. And, you know, Richard, the the pattern is going to be interesting to follow. And uh, uh, there's a lot of possible motives here. Well, we'll we'll definitely keep following up on this. But I just want to pick up on that last point you made. This may not have been done. This, uh, this, this Jacintha, Jacintha's Saldana's murder may not have been done at the behest of the royal family. In fact, you're saying that the Windsors may have been targeted by some other group. Exactly. If you know the way these people live behind castle walls, not for not for nothing. And um, if you understand the way they've behaved in Africa and other parts of the world, they certainly have made a lot of enemies, and there may have. A lot of people come back and want to get them. And uh, if their daughter-in-law, if uh, if she was in the hospital there, then um, she may have been the target of some sort of a black op from a foreign agency that uh, that they stopped, and they want to just cover it up and call it a suicide, not let anybody know that they're under attack from foreign intelligence services. Interesting. Well, you've uh, you certainly piqued our interest, Nelson, and uh, I'll, I'll leave it to you to stay in touch with your intelligence sources, uh, and perhaps we'll get to the bottom of this, and we'll certainly hear from you and not the mainstream media on what happened to uh, 46-year-old Jacintha Seldana, again discovered on in her uh, room, uh, staff accommodations near London's King Edward VII Hospital, which was treating Kate Middleton uh, for morning sickness. Nelson, thanks for this. And we've been batting a thousand and we'll continue the record, Richard. All right, my friend. Nelson Thal. And uh, my thanks also to Patria Patrick, the uh, director-producer of American Empire, and also 
to Mickey Huff, the director of Project Censored. Uh, that's it for me. And um, listen, uh, all the best for the uh, the Christmas season uh, to you and yours. A very Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah and a, uh, a Happy New Year. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. And what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.